So when we're talking about culture, the reality is culture is being created moment by moment by the behaviors of the people that are within the culture. This is Philip Folsom. He calls himself the wolf guy. Philip's an ex-military leader turned anthropologist who facilitates culture development coaching using, among other elements, wolf packs. In this interview, we discuss the insanity of Western civilization and the difference between honor-based societies and pride-based societies, as well as an important look at military vet suicidality and what we can do to better understand and serve our warriors. Co-founder of the nonprofit Sparta, which we're going to get into in a minute, and anthropologist. Um, so I guess you're an adjunct professor at USC. Is that your role? Yeah, I lecture at Marshall, um, which is their business school. Okay, right on. Well, because there's so many layers, I just want to take your chain off and let you <laughs> explain what is at the center of, of why you're here today to talk to me. Great. Uh, well, my name is Philip Folsom, and I'm an anthropologist. Uh, living and working out of Venice Beach, California right now. Uh, my backstory or origin story, which I think is relevant to this conversation, is um, I'm part Choctaw and, and part uh, Irish. So my joke is that I'm a perfect storm of alcoholism. Uh, I grew up with a lot of pre-trauma, which is um, mostly the stuff that we receive when we're young related to neglect or uh, primarily poverty. That's the big one. Um, that's the number one cause of pre-trauma in our society right now is poverty. And pre-trauma actually preloads you to having a whole bunch of maladaptive behavioral stuff that comes along later in life, particularly if all of that chronic pre-trauma is triggered by some acute trauma later in life, which is a uh, is usually a big epic event, such as a lot of our um, military folks and first responders uh, have, and that that's one of the primary drivers of post-traumatic stress is our is the amount of uh, background trauma that comes into the equation. And our uh, veterans and police force have roughly three times the amount of pre-trauma as the average civilian. And that's a very in- important marker to realize that when you're dealing with people who are coming from um, poverty backgrounds then you uh, have to factor that into the way that you, um, you know, address some of the resiliency, mental health issues of that. And my, my story was that it took me a while to get to engage fully with that mental health process. And what it did was it led me into a lot of different uh, modalities of growth, which you know well, um, equestrian uh, therapy, doing outdoor ed ropes courses, programs, meditation and sweat lodges and Zen archery and anything that would give me an opportunity to explore and discover how I can uh, fix some of the broken pieces that I knew were rattling around in my soul. And it turns out that that journey wasn't just about me and the shame that I felt about being broken. It was the awareness that all of us, everybody listening, has got some little piece of yourself that doesn't want to be found out, some imposter syndrome or inadequacy or fear of abandonment. There's some core wound that we all carry in our society. And how do we fix that? And then that, that became my life's work, is how do we uh, drive into our individual behavior habit set 
to be able to make our lives happier and healthier and high performing. And eventually it was the awareness that when you take all of those habits and behaviors of a group of people, now that's their, that's their culture. And there's also a lot of damaged, broken cultures in our society. So that led me to my current job, which is working with uh, organizations and, and the individuals in the organizations to try to shore up their their culture so that it functions better and what that's coming down to from an anthropology uh, background is how do we create kinship systems how do we create um organizations that are fully collaborative and and very reciprocal and the the term kin is very important in in uh in our work because at, at its very root level um the word kinship contains the root of the word kind. And if we want more kindness in our life, well, that's the way we treat our kin. So how do we, how do we treat, create kin in a um, non-kinship-based society that we live in? And that's, that's primarily my, my work right now is to figure out how do we hack that? How do we create it? How do we um, reintroduce the tribe systems back into a culture uh, that is a career-based culture my current work awesome and we've got a, a number of layers here that i i want to organize before we get into that i just want people to hear and understand even though for many it may sound implied or just easy to digest why do you think it's so important that at this point in time humanity invests in stronger kinship yeah um it's it will this will be the root or the center mass challenge of our times right now. And I'll just give you a couple scary stats. Um, male suicide uh, of adult males is up almost 40% in the last eight years. And I'll just let that sink in for a minute. That's epidemic levels. In our current Western culture, 40% increase of, of suicide. Our uh, clinical anxiety and depression rates are also um, epidemic. And... If you even just take the veteran conversation, since 9-11, we've lost 8,000 uh, of, of us to um, combat. During that period of time, we've lost over 150,000 to suicide. And I'll let that figure just sink mm -hmm. in for a minute. That, um, that's a catastrophe. That is a mental health catastrophe. And a very wise man named Krishnamurti, who uh, was a great philosopher, he said that is no measure of health to be well adapted to a profoundly sick society. It is no measure of health to be well adapted to a profoundly sick society. And that's what's happened to us is that at some point we all learned how to play the game of living in a career-based, pride-based culture, which is very maladaptive for a kinship-based creature such as ourselves. And if we want to take a look at what to answer your question, what is the importance of that at the root cause, just to drive down into some of our biology, um, we are designed to be amongst our kinfolk and our tribe. And when we are, we receive serotonin, which is our well-being hormone. It makes us happy and healthy. When we are around strangers, we uh, are pushing out massive amounts of cortisol, adrenaline, norepinephrine, our stress hormones, because when we're around strangers, it's very threatening to us as a 
as an organism. And in our current culture, we are around strangers all the time. And so, you know, we're not going to be able to change that um, dynamic. What we can do is we can look at the situations in life where we spend the most amount of time. And for most of the people listening, that's going to be work. We spend, you know, the center mass of our lives at our jobs. And so I'm proposing that the, your coworkers are not just your coworkers. And I use the word just intentionally because it means it's not really what it, they are. Um, are. Your coworkers actually are your tribes people. They are your kinfolk. They need to be uh, looked at as people who are full collaborators and primary participants in the journey of your life. And when we relegate them to that's just my coworker, well, it's like playing chess and you've just surrendered the center four squares of the chessboard. You really can't win the game. And, and people are desperately trying to find meaning and, and some sort of success and validation and purpose by playing on the edges of the chessboard on the weekends and at Coachella once a year and scrambling for the, the scraps of, of purpose. When we just have to look inwards and go, okay, where do I spend most of my time? Okay, it's probably work. Who are those important people in my life? Those are the VIP folks in my world. And how do I create, how do I transform them from being career to kin? And that's why it's important. Uh, the number one driver of longevity in the world, that's the people who live in blue zones. There are people who are embedded in, in um, you know, robust, interconnected communities. Has very little to do with diet. Has very little to do with lifestyle. It all has to do with community. So it's center, central to all of our, uh, even just straight health well-being. And, and I, I've studied tribe cultures all over the world. Um, last year, I was with the Maasai in Africa, and um, there's no diabetes there. There's no, um, very little heart disease. There's almost no cancer. There's no anxiety or depression. Like, it just doesn't exist. Um, they have almost zero diabetes in, in the Maasai. And the reason why is because they're not um, they're not swimming in cortisol, which causes inflammation. All of our diseases in our um, human experience is caused from inflammation. It's it's all it's what we eat. It's how we live. It's it's primarily caused from cortisol. And so when we can manage our stress, we manage our inflammation. That I mean that's a straight correlation. It's not an opinion. That's like right. that's a scientific fact. So. Um, what is the number one cause of cortisol in our life? Yeah, and tr yes, traffic sucks <laughs> and, you know, mon money's scary. And, you know, there's all these sort of nihilistic, you know, big questions of humanity. Uh, the big one is that you're around strangers. That's the big one. So stop being around strangers. Turn those strangers into, into kinfolk. And that's probably the next step of the conversation. Yeah, <laughs> go, go on into it. Because I guess there, there's people listening who – are saying, well, wait a minute, but what if I haven't connected with folks I work with and yeah. really don't have a lot of desire to, how do I generate yeah. community there? Yeah, that's the, that is the hook there. Yeah. And a culture is something that is a living thing. It's, uh, it's not one of those that, Hey, we made the declaration of independence and our culture is set in stone and you're born into it. And that's what you are. So when the people leave, you know, your, your horse ranch, 
I'm just assuming you have a horse ranch. I don't know exactly. I'm just I, I, I partner with somebody who does. Yes. I just saw beautiful pictures of you. With horses, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the moment, you know, all the ranch hands and all the, you know, the people who work there uh, in the culture of the ranch, when they all get in their trucks and go home, there is no culture at the ranch anymore. I mean, except for the horses, which have their own culture, I'm sure. Right. Um, but the moment the first people show up, the way they show up is creating the culture of the tribe that operates within that, um, you know, that boundary. So leaders uh, who are people whose decisions affect other people. And so most of you listening to this podcast, you are leaders in, you know, one or more um, scenarios in your life. You're creating a culture by what you're modeling. And it, it is vastly more important uh, what you do than what you say or what you write, which is why a lot of organizations spend a lot of time in their their vision statements and their corporate value statements and their mission statements, and they assume that culture has been handled and they move on to you know other things like strategy and marketing and technology. And it's like, nope, <laughs> you need to level up your humans. You need to level up uh, their behavior. You need to level up the way that um, the operating system of the human beings in the equation are working because that's the primary driver of success. And uh, the most recent study out of the University of London shows that uh, investing in your culture is uh, eight times uh, more impactful than investing in either strategy or technology because culture drives, it drives innovation, drives efficiency, it drives competition, it drives most importantly retention. So if you want to maintain and retain and, and engage your humans so that you can be successful. And this is from a church to a soccer team to um, SpaceX, where I work. You got to level up, you know, the, the, the human beings in that. And that's, that creates your high performance. You're saying essentially that leveling up means get yourself in the game and create actions that contribute to the culture you want to be in. Yes, and, and human beings have a, a remarkable ability to to learn. We have it's called neuroplasticity, mm -hmm. and and um, some of the interesting things about humans is that we are, you know, um, evolution has made this deal with the devil with our our poor females that um, they can you know we can only birth humans with heads that are so big, all right. <laughs> Otherwise, we kill all our females. So sort of the compromise evolutionarily is that we are birthing um, children that are not quite done yet. They really could use another six months, but um, so they, when, you know, there's a long period of time, which is called neoteny, which is kind of that period where they're, they're actually continuing to gestate almost um, in the first year of an infant's life. And human beings are not born with in any instincts. We have a lot of drives, but we have no instincts, unlike, for instance, uh, a baby wolf. And I know we're going to talk about wolves in a minute, but wolves are born with a, a certain instinctive skill set, which is hardwired into the species. And um, for instance, when you take a bunch of strange wolves from different rescued places and you put them together, and then all of a sudden the rabbit runs out, they do wolf things. You know, they immediately drop into. Uh, you know, a wolf sequence of hunting behavior and humans simply do not have that. Humans are a laptop or a phone that, that you're listening to this podcast on 
um, that has no operating system. And the operating system that's provided to us humans by our parents and then our teachers and then, you know, YouTube and Instagram, that's, that's actually providing the operating system or the culture that we are viewing the world through. And so it is absolutely vital that we take some sort of a, um, an active participation in managing our intake diet of, you know, what's, what is creating the infrastructure of the lens through which we see the world. And, and that's a really cool thing as well, because it means that you can take a very dysfunctional member of a, of a team or a family or relationship and they can learn. We can um, level up the way that we express ourselves, the way that we um, ask for help, the way that we connect to our emotions and our internal landscape. And obviously, you know, human beings have been playing with mentorship and meditation for tens of thousands of years. I mean, it's a, it's a, this is an ancient technology of being able to um, not just accept our, our, our as is as humans. We, we want to be better. And so it's, it's a, we're at a very, very exciting time in the world that you and I can be sharing this information from thousands of miles away and reaching thousands of people and creating massive ripples out into our, um, our society, which are all, uh, you know, coalescing into some you know, change and consciousness and transformation. And we have a shot, I believe, you know, this is my anthropologist talking. Um, we have a shot to, um, be in an era right now of great men and women. Hmm. It, it's an exciting time. And, and there was a short period of time where the Greeks had it, you know, where you see this lineage of Aristotle, Plato, Socrates. I mean, they, those were back to back. That's dynasty right there. Mm -hmm. And along with all the Stoics and all the other philosophers, and at the same time that they were rocking, you've got all the Old Testament uh, prophets and they're dropping wisdom bombs, you know, a thousand miles away you got all the same things happening in china like it was a great era for humanity um and then you know we see that same thing happening in the 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 roman times and there's some periods in the enlightenment and i and, and certainly the founding fathers of our country that was definitely a sweet spot where you saw uh, there were some uh, men and women doing great things at that period of time and and we probably don't have time to talk about all the societal drivers that creates that opportunity for great people, but we're in that time right now. Yeah. And this is, this is part of that conversation. The people listening to this type of podcast, super givers, they're people who are going, ah, I got a shot at changing the world Yeah, and, and doing something exalted and uplifting. And, and, uh, and what we would call that is from a human perspective, that's called hunting big game. It's purpose. It's large meaning. And like wolves, we cannot accomplish um, big game targets unless we collaborate with other humans. Yeah. This is why it's so central that we start moving out from that um, transactional me first lone wolf mindset of I'm going to get mine. Yeah. And, and then once I get mine, then I will serve uh, and give back. And it's just the, simply the wrong paradigm to set because uh, really the inverse from a tribal situation is the is how it functions is we think tribe first or um, purpose first 
And that tends to be vastly more effective in, in organizations and in sports teams, sports psychology or anything else is thinking, you know, how do I do my collective win? And then I know I have the faith that that, that I will get mine because I'm part of that, um, that collective team. Yeah. I, I appreciate your reframe on the opportunity for the brilliant time in humanity. And I'm hoping you can elaborate on or go into a little more depth on the wolf work. Um, you can yeah. call yourself the wolf guy. So <laughs> how, how do you know, how does the work you do with wolves and what we know anthropologically about wolves um, yeah. as packs, how does that serve where we are in humanity right now the most? Yeah. Um, hey, bigger conversation. Uh, and I, I, anybody who's really interested, I would uh, love to give you a reading list or share, unpack more of this. Um, and in addition, the pack that I work with is um, out down is down here in Southern California. It's called Apex Protection Project, and they have a vast amount of information as well about wolf biology and behavior and, and history. But in a nutshell, um, Homo sapien, which is us, has been on the planet for about two hundred and fifty thousand years. For the majority of that time, we were scavengers. We were not, you know, given the planet when we showed up and saying, "Here you go, you're the top dog." We showed up, and in fact, the very bottom of the African food chain. Uh, there, in when you look at tooth sequencing on fossils, it was the super predators like the wolves and the big cats that made the kills, and then you got your hyenas on top of that, and then the wild dogs, and then the vultures, and after the vultures, you have Homo sapien with our little longitudinal cut marks. So, we were very happy just to be able to get the scraps maybe break some bones and get some marrow. And at one point, humanity was almost went out. And they, they have a thing called the genetic bottleneck about uh, 20,000 years ago, where we were down to less than 10,000 members of our species on the planet, mm. planet Earth. So during the last ice age, we just about went out. We were, and while we were struggling for just raw survival, the wolves were thriving because they are the apex predator on the planet. They have the widest range of any mammal. They have the most effective pack hunter of, uh, on the planet until us. And so 35,000 years ago, something magical changed with humanity that we went from scavenger to uh, leapfrogging right over the wolf as arguably you know, the most effective communal pack hunting species that the earth has ever seen. And it was that magical time when we see this explosion of tool use or, or technological advancements with atlatls and advanced flint napping and controlled use of fire and cave art and ritual burials. It, it was an extraordinary time. And there seems to be no um, you know, evidence conclusively about what happened to us. Why did we spend 200,000 years with zero change, zero development? And then all of a sudden, you know, endless, vast development that is no longer that continues to this day. Hmm. And uh, it, there's many people who have the, um, you know, the stoned ape uh, hypothesis that at some point we drop into some psilocybin or some peyote or, you know, whatever that, you know, plant medicine that changed our consciousness enough that we started becoming more aware of time and more aware of um, abstract concepts. And that's that's possible. But. The other thing that happened 35,000 years ago is 
the wolf began its long transition into becoming our dog. And we, um, because we're so anthrocentric, uh, we think that we domesticated the wolf. And that simply is, is not true. Uh, we did not domesticate the wolf. Uh, we scavenged off of the wolf. We partnered with that animal. And at some point, it behooved um, a certain member of their population to be partnering with us. And so over you know, a period of, of uh, thousands of years, then we see you know, uh, an increase in, in the uh, DNA patterns that, that the markers of domesticity, which happen to be um, floppy ears, more black and white coloring, curly tail, like there, you know, all the stuff that we consider dog-like mm-hmm. is actually a, a genetic markers for um, domesticity, and then they're tracking that right now with with um, some really interesting studies in um, in Russia with foxes. Our mm-hmm. foxes, when they start breeding them as pets, end up looking exactly like dogs. <laughs> so interesting. Yeah. So the, the wolf, um, our dogs, you know, your your beautiful black lab or chow or whatever was a wolf 35,000 years ago. And why the wolf was so effective in its millions of years of, um, you know, dominance on the planet is that they learned how to specialize. They, they learned that instead of there just being, you know, here's the male wolves, here's the female wolves, they learned that if they could um, have specialized behavior sets they would be uh, much more efficient and effective and resilient. And so there are many people that believe that um, we probably stole the current operating system, or not the current, I'm going to say the tribal operating system of humanity 35,000 years ago from the wolf. And that when you look at uh, the behavior set of a wolf pack, it's exactly the same as the behavior set of our high-performing sports teams, our military units, um, you know, all of our first responders, basically, when, at our best, when we are being the most effective, the most resilient, the most fulfilled, highest performing, we are a wolf pack, and so that seems to be, you know, the what we got from the wolf, and the it comes down to three things. We, uh, number one, we hunt big game and that's what wolves do. They don't hunt rabbits. Uh, wolves hunt elk and bison. They hunt big things. Uh, a, uh, a wolf that's hunting an elk, which weighs about 1200 pounds and it's got spears on its head and a wolf weighs about a hundred pounds and it cannot pull down an elk by itself. It takes, you know, half a dozen other Um, wolves operating in perfect harmony who are doing exactly what they're supposed to to have a shot at pulling down a giant you know mountain horse with spears on its head and wolves kill it with their face so they have to get in and really do the work and they need each other so that's the first market we need each other if we want to be able to do things that are meaningful and and large scale if you want to build a cathedral, if you want to build a company, if you want to, if you want to really do something that is a super giver, giver level, change the world project, you cannot do it by yourself. You have to collaborate. So that's the first marker. If you need people, like if you need people to be successful in whatever it is you're doing, you cannot afford to bite them. 
And this is the second wolf lesson. Wolves do not bite each other when they're in their own pack. It's a taboo. And obviously, if wolves did bite each other, there would be no more wolves, right? Because when you bite a member of your team, you're degrading the effectiveness of your team. You would never trip somebody on a sports team then you're trying to you know, play a game. And, and we do it all the time. We bite each other constantly. You know, we gossip, we politic, we undermine, we withhold. We, we, you know, we, we're relentlessly nipping on each other to try to get ahead of the next person or to try to get ours. So lesson number two is you got to stop biting each other. And lesson number three happens once you've established a culture of I'm not going to bite you because I need you. Now, all of a sudden, we can fight without biting because if i want to be held accountable if i want to give and receive constructive feedback if i want to um operate it at my highest level so i can change the world like i need people to to you know hold me accountable and there's going to be conflict conflict is inherent in people who are living a, a very robust honest authentic um life so wolves fight all the time. They squabble, they negotiate, they demand, they test each other. And they're able to do that because they're not biting each other. So that seems to be the infrastructure of a successful culture in my eyes. And the wolves give us really this almost childish, um, you know, rule set of how do I live effectively? Collaborate. Don't bite. Fight, but don't bite. And if we can all live like that, we seem to be uh, have a much greater success at, at thriving in our, in our lives. This is great. So here's where the rubber meets the road for, I don't know, the big question for me. So as you know, I'm doing work from a very similar worldview with horse herds and I'm fascinated with the concept of non-predatory power. Mm -hmm. And what I just heard you do was create sort of a metaphor about the apex predator. And mm -hmm. when you're saying, you know, hunting big game, you're actually translating that into um, creation. Like you said, build a cathedral yep. or a company. Yep. So I appreciate you taking that from a predatory example into mm -hmm. a creative um, analogy. So that, that's what I, I want to know is in this day and age, and especially in the West where, you know, it's at least from my perspective and, and many other anthropological minded people that I respect can easily assess that a large part of our leadership and the leadership that we often celebrate and reinforce in our sports culture, our business culture, our political culture is highly predatory yep. and not, not in a healthy way. <laughs> In the, in the darkest predatory way where I am going to use your vulnerability against you to take everything I can for myself and leave you with nothing. That kind of predation. What I want to know is how does the, the symbiosis with um, wolves and the, the way that you're extrapolating the symbolism into humanity, mm -hmm. how do you walk that line of using an apex predator in a time where humanity is arguably really out of balance with its, with its predation. Mm. <clears throat> well, wolves aren't thrill kill animals. 
wolves, wolves, like they don't um, just hunt to hunt. They don't kill to kill. Um, and I guess they call that thrill killing. Mm-hmm. There's only been a few examples of, um, for example, um, wolves killing too many elk in a in certain valleys. And, you know, the, there's a huge uh, schism of people who hate wolves and people who love wolves. And, if, and the joke is, if you want to get in a bar fight in Montana, all you got to do is mention, you know, the wolf situation. <laughs> <laughs> and so there are there are certainly ranchers who believe that wolves have, you know, will eat all their cows. And there are hunters who think that the wolves will kill all the elk. And, mm. and the reality is they're not really killing all the elk. They're just driving the elk back to where they should be, which is up in the mountains. And when there's no, no, no wolves, then the elk will come down into the valleys and they will completely denude all of the branches and trees. But the hunters like that because then they get to shoot the elk from their trucks. So it's a really convenient thing. But the reality is the wolves are not – um, they're not just running amok and killing all the, um, you know, the ungulates because they can, um, they're killing what they need. It's a very healthy environment. And I would call, I would call that wildness. There's a, there's a, there's a, um, there's a certain amount of just robust, honest, um, wildness of competition. It's not bad. Competition is not a bad thing. Right. And, and I would say, you know, even in my studies of, of equine social intelligence, Horses have the predator inside them if they need it, even though they are not, you know, meat eaters. And I think the lesson there and what I'm hearing you say in sync with that is that the the predator is a necessary part of our ecosystem because it keeps things in balance. And what I want to know is cl- clearly from my perspective, humanity is is way out of balance with its predation. And so what I'm wondering is what is the big game that people can hunt and refocus on that brings us back into balance. Uh, okay. Um, I want to get the distinction between wildness and savagery. And there's a profound difference. Okay. Um, it's, it, it's one of the things that's unpacked brilliantly in the book, Iron John by Robert Bly. Mm-hmm. I've got it, it upstairs. And, yeah. There you go. And, and Iron John is the wild man and it's a symbolic, um, concept and it's about initiation with men and moving from an adolescent mindset into an adult mindset and all of those components that have to happen for men to become initiated and become a become the full king that we could be so that's the wild man and the wild man um is that thing which is unapologetic and it's scary and it's um, frightening but it's healthy and and when people don't have access to being honest and robust and healthy, then instead of being wild, they become savage. And what we're seeing with our um, run amok predatory transactional uh, economy that you're referring to, I would call that savagery mm-hmm. and not wildness. I like and that. So, yeah. so the, the predator itself is, um, is not a savage, which is why I was saying they don't thrill kill. Right. And humans thrill kill yes. because we are savage. We are savages. We have been so disconnected from wildness that we have gone insane. Hmm. And the people that go out on um, coyote hunts and prairie dog hunts and just just kill to kill, that's savage. It is completely disconnected from any, any part of our um, natural cycle of things. And so I, w- I would have that distinction. And I would call the, the rampant commercialism and, and predatory um, – 
capitalism that we're sort of experiencing now, that that's a primary example of that sick society that Krishnamurti talks about. Yeah. Is is and and again, I am not saying anything about um, competition being bad. I think competition is incredibly healthy. It creates, uh, you know, it, it creates successful organisms. It creates successful companies mm-hmm. and individuals. Mm-hmm. We have to be tested. And yes, the people who have the most competence should win. And I say that unapologetically. Mm-hmm. If you're very good at what you do, you should win. And what that does is it creates overall all of us being better when the people who have more competence are eventually end up being more successful. So unfortunately, um, with the way that some of the systems work is that that has been twisted by, again, back to that savagery where, where things are no longer um, engaged with a healthy competition that is connected to some larger um, value system. And so things get a little squirrely with that. Um, some of the difference is uh, there's uh, tribal cultures operate what's called an, in an honor code or an honor system. And our current uh, society runs off of a pride-based system. It's a pride-based culture. And the difference between honor and pride are profound in the sense that uh, honor is interpersonal and it's what I think you think about me. It's connected to our relationship. It's connected to our identity as a group. It's connected to our tribe, our ideals, all of those components. It somehow it's it's um, interconnected inherently by its definition. Pride is us individually, our role, our car, our job, our followers. It's my brand. Mm-hmm. That's a pride-based system, mm-hmm. and it, it's savage. Yeah. Uh, whereas. An honor-based system, it's still wild um, because in honor-based systems, people are very, very honest with each other. And in and honor codes exist in all the tribal systems that I referred to, the military, sports teams, first responders, you know, and those are, they're some very robust, scary places to be around if you're not accepted in it. If you are not part of that honor code, or that honor tribe, and you're just looking in from the outside, it looks like a bunch of Klingons. Like when you look into a locker room of a pro sports team, their behavior set is not nice, nice, and neither is it with cops or with soldiers, but it's honest, it's wild, it's immediate, and it's designed to hold each other accountable, which is what wolves do. Hmm. So a culture that is operating with a uh, under an honor system or uh, is a much healthier um, organization than one that is that is purely pride based, and that's when I think you see a lot of just that um, rampant commercialism gone gone amok. Of how much can I get? It's never enough. There's no. I mean, we have, we have. You know, I don't know what the, how many numbers of uh, billionaires we're at right now, but we have a <laughs> a vast vast amount of billionaires. Why? What's the point of a billion? I mean, come on, <laughs> do something else. Like, you know, <laughs> That's a great question. What's the point a, of a billionaire? <laughs> you know, come on, man. Like, at some point, there it's not enough. They, they are not enough. Yeah. If you continue to just endlessly um, need to accrue wealth, like okay, you know, time to pivot off and you know maybe explore some internal landscape and win that game. <laughs> 
or yeah. something. Yeah, there's some anyway. nourishment block. Well, well and I, and I just want to say, having been part of some of those honor-based cultures that you speak of, that of course there can be a spectrum of health even within the honor system. So I, I assume what you're meaning is when these uh, cultures that are honor-based have high levels of safety, consciousness, um, honesty, and, you know, sort of the, the values that really drive a high integrity honor system is, I assume what you're, what you're, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, Hey, we, listen, and I want to be really transparent too, because I think the, the world runs on honesty. Um, there's a really dark side to tribes and it's called tribalism and exclusive virtue. And that that's inherent in that also. And that is part of the human condition too, is that we have to realize that there will always be an other with us. Right. Like until the aliens attack us, we are always going to look for the other that we need to strive against. And yeah. and that that's there. Um, and also, like, well, I conveniently did not mention the honor or tribe cultures of prisons or mm. gangs or a bunch of other really, really dark, maladaptive systems in our culture. And they and we didn't touch on initiations, but um, to become fully uh, immer- uh, I guess immersed into a uh, a tribe culture, you need to be initiated. And so most we've lost all of our initiation practices in our current culture, but there still is what they refer to as a shadow initiation um, in gang culture. And in even some of the police, some of the hazing of our fraternities, yep. there's there's a there's a thing called a shadow initiation, which leaves you um, somewhat in a no man's land of now I'm kind of part of a tribe, but I don't have I haven't been given the the um, the honor and the virtue and the the tools that will allow me to become a um, a full hero of the story. Yeah. And and I there's a, there's some of that that. I'm very interested in in my men's work and my other work is how do we reclaim some of that opportunity to become the hero of the story as opposed to just I get to be good or powerful, which is really the binary options that we get, right. particularly as men in our particularly culture. Particularly as men, yeah. yeah. Like you get to be a nice guy who's kind of weak and dismissible, right. right? or you get to be a powerful guy who is morally corrupt and a bully and, you know, make your choice. And I, I just am really looking at what, what are the um, mythological and ancestral op- you know, options that include both of those components. And it just, it's rife in all of our stories and all of our mythology that yes, there is a heroic option available for people to be both powerful and good. And, and that, that is coming online, back to our conversation about the great man, is that people are no longer satisfied with just making money. Um, the new, you know, the Gen Y folks who are moving into the job market now, um, the studies are showing that, that more than money or lifestyle or flex hours, it's purpose that drives them. That's the number one driver of retention or the, the current workforce coming out of college right now is does the job have a purpose? And that's an incredibly optimistic, exciting thing for those of us who are in the, the human, uh, you know, field Yeah, is that people are starting to look at, you know, capital P purpose, which is the big game yeah. that we need to hunt. 
so it's exciting times. Yeah, I love that. I appreciate your, yeah, hearing that challenge and, and reframing it is really helpful, um, especially in a, in a lot of my listeners are really like fighting for underdogs and people who are disadvantaged and people who have been oppressed for all of human existence, right? So to hear about the plight of, of the great man can be can be hard to contextualize. Yeah, I want to hear more about your experience in the military because you were you were in the service at some point mm-hmm. in your background yep. and and how that inspired Sparta and why that work is is so important. Yeah. Um, okay, see, uh, Sparta is a uh, PTS war detox. Um, it's not specifically suicide prevention, but you know when the rubber meets the road, that's kind of what is the big challenge, particularly for um, a lot of men. And certainly women are dealing with that too, but um, we seem to be, um, gosh, so much more successful at suicide than the women. (laughs) Generally what we're seeing is that when people are in honor-based systems, tribal cultures, such as the army, which I was in, I was in the United States Army, um, when we're embedded in that culture we we have a tremendous ability to process trauma even if it's horrific um because one of the um the markers particularly of shame is that shame is interpersonal um versus um guilt which is intrapersonal it's just myself so a lot of times when people are isolated and they're feeling inadequate or they're they're feeling some some form of embarrassment or or pain and they cannot share that, then that shame load just continues to build up until it eventually leads to anxiety, depression, suicide. So when we're amongst our our brethren, even if we're doing or experiencing things that are incredibly traumatic, we're experiencing them together. We have camaraderie. We're able to discharge a lot of that shame. And so we're fairly functional. You don't see a lot of suicide with soldiers who are, you know, out on the battlefield. It's when they come home. It's when you when you take honor-based men and women and attempt to reintroduce them into pride-based cultures where, you know, it's individual first. And that mm-hmm. in very maladaptive for a pack animal, whether it be a horse or a or a wolf or a human, to be isolated. Even in, and I live in one of the biggest cities in the world. And it's filled with a bunch of individual uh, people who are in many cases starving to death, but it's not a literal starvation. It's a financial, spiritual, social starvation. And so for our, for veterans, that's the beginning of the death spiral is that they are playing their honor based cards. They're playing uh, their honor behavior, but it's not receiving any results because they're in a pride based world. And what happens is that just leads to further isolation and in honor-based cultures, which are tribal, um, all the, the big answers are, are provided for you, which is, who are my tribes people? Well, here they are, and they wear that. Mm-hmm. Well, um, what is my virtues? What are, who do I be? Who should I become? How do I behave? What's my mission? Like, that is provided to you. But if, if I were to ask your listeners right now, so, you know, what are the answers to all of those questions? you might have to put some serious thought into it before you responded. And so to dump that load onto um, 
transitioning veterans is on top of all the rest of their, you know, the, the trauma load they're carrying is yeah. overwhelming. And right. that's when you see the huge spike in suicide happening. So what are, so, yeah, what's, what are you doing with Sparta then? And what really, what, what well, have you seen really changes that story? Yeah. They, they say, if you, if you meet Buddha on the road, kill him. Hmm. So I, <laughs> meaning, uh, if he's claiming to be Buddha, you know, he's probably, <laughs> you should probably kill him. So I, I, I'm not proclaiming to be Buddha here in any sense, but I am going to say that we're doing a really, really good job with having very, very effective, um, killers, not killing themselves. Mm-hmm. So how it works at least. Uh, and for if you guys know anybody who's listening, uh, or if you yourself are struggling with some, some challenges, um, Meditation is going to be central to your process. Meditation um, is the most well-researched behavioral thing that will, you know, give you back the manual controls of your life. And so that's central. It's a key thing. Secondly, you have to find your tribe. You need to find your people. And sometimes that requires um, leveling up yourself. So that you can attract good people because you, you know, you've all heard that you're the measure of the five people you're, you're around the most. Mm -hmm. So, and the inverse is also true. So once you kind of start getting your value offering of your identity and the way you serve and the way you show up in the world and your reliability and, you know, every, everything, as soon as you start upgrading your operating system, you notice you start attracting better people. And pretty soon, instead of being around you know, dysfunctional addicts, like I was most of my life, you know, you're around people who um, are living successful, um, altruistic lives. And all of a sudden you start getting that feedback loop happening. So build your tribe. That's number two, meditate, build your tribe. And then the third one is humans are not designed to um, have no meaning and no purpose. That's, this is what comes from being embedded in a, um, tribe culture is that you have a purpose it's it's provided to you and it means i i get to do something that is important that's bigger than me and that that makes humans feel fulfilled it provides us with meaning and hey at the at the at the end of the day suicide is a response to a life without meaning so if you're looking at your job and going this has no meaning to me whatsoever or if you're looking at whatever you're doing on a day-to-day basis going that did that fulfill me? Did it provide, did it move the conversation forward uh, of some, some big, big, um, project? If it doesn't, then, you know, you gotta, you have to find, we all have to have find something to serve. And so that's, those seems to be the three components to create happy, healthy, high-performing humans is, um, find your tribe. The tribe many times provides the meaning. And, and then do some sort of, you know, develop a mindfulness practice. Those are the, those are the big ones. And obviously if you're depressed, don't drink depressants. Hmm. It's kind of a duh moment, but sobriety can't hurt people. <laughs> um, that's just my own little aside on that. Um, so lifestyle is a big one too. You know, when, when, when you exercise guys, you, you, your body releases a whole bunch of stuff that makes you feel good. You get dopamine and serotonin and oxytocin and all that. I mean, all of your feel-good stuff comes from when you exercise. And and so that can't hurt either. Roll in a little bit of that. Awesome. Yeah. Philip, how can people listening 
best support Sparta? We are a full, we're a 501c3 nonprofit. We only run off of um, donations and we don't get paid. Um, we're, so if, uh, it, you know, we run a cohort when we manage to get about $25,000 uh, in the bank, which allows us to rent a camp and for six days, at which point we can run a cohort. And uh, a cohorts are free to the veterans and the first responders. Uh, and it's, a, and we actually do equestrian therapy for a whole day. We do ropes courses. We meditate twice a day. It's non-denominational. It's, um, you know, there's nothing culty about it. It's just straight, effective, um, war detox, um, experiences. So, uh, the Sparta project.org, the Sparta project.org. And you can also access it through, um, any of my information and my name's Philip, like the screwdriver and Folsom, like the prison. So Philip Folsom, Philip with one L. Awesome. And, and we'll have all this uh, links and notes in the production notes if you're listening. So you can click on that and check out all of Philip's amazing work. Is there anything else you want to share um, briefly about that we didn't get to? Yeah. You know, I, I guess, and you can always cut this out too, if you want, yeah. but um, when I, when I wanted to, I was sharing about meditation. There's a lot of people that, when you even mention the word meditation, they either go, oh, yeah, I've tried that. Or they just automatically dismiss that as kind of some hippie shenanigans. And I was the same way, too. I mean, I, um, but I, w- the story I want to tell you super quick about meditation that might change that story for you yeah. um, is that uh, meditation was first introduced in written human literature in the Bhagavad Gita, which is, you know, that just Indian giant saga from thousands of years ago and and the main character one of the main characters was this super warrior rambo guy named arjuna and he was kind of the best archer in the land he could outshoot the gods and he was the dude and at one point uh the god krishna comes down to uh earth because the warrior class was destroying the land so these are the savages that we talked about earlier these are the predatory transactional capitalists um, or the thuggish bullies, adolescent um, men and that we all know of. And then they're just destroying the land. And so Krishna comes down disguised as Arjuna's chariot driver and reveals himself and says, I need you, Arjuna, super warlord, to kill all of the warriors in this land, the savages who are you know, wrecking our culture. And Arjuna says, Ooh, uh, I can't do that because those are my brothers. Those are my people. Um, I can't. And then Krishna says, I'm going to provide you with the tools to defeat all of your enemies and absolve you of all guilt, at which point he teaches him how to meditate. And so the, the metaphor is that, and this is sometimes true for many of us veterans who are transitioning into a different type of service, is we still need to fight a battle. Because, boy, we all want to do that. That's, that's probably what this podcast in many ways is about, is I want to strive and struggle and express and explore and change. And so the real enemy is within. Those are the, those are the warriors that we need to vanquish. And a lot of times it's, it's our, our smallness and our bad habits and our destructive uh, tendencies. And so meditation 
you know, gives us the tools to be able to fight those battles. And so meditation was given to the warriors. It was given to men. And why I think that's important for a lot of us is that, you know, we don't have to apologize for learning how to um, self-care. In fact, it's incredibly empowering. We should all be able to sit with ourselves for 20 minutes a day and fight those battles. And by doing so, it only makes us better. It makes us more powerful, more able to serve, um, just healthier and happier uh, and better tribes people. Amen. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, that's a fantastic way to end, I think. Mm, My man. Philip Folsom, Wolf Tribe, work as a speaker and coach in leadership culture development facilitator, co-founder of the suicide prevention NPO Sparta, which serves vets and first responders and anthropologists at USC. You are um, doing some amazing work in the world, and I really appreciate you taking the time to share it with us. Oh, my man. Uh, Thanks for giving the platform and doing what you do. To check out Philip's work, head over to philipfolsom.com. That's P-H-I-L-I-P-F-O-L-S-O-M.com and thespartaproject.org. My question for you is this. What's the big game you're hunting in your personal or professional life? And how will the world benefit from your being successful? This has been the Super Givers Podcast, and I'm your host and producer, Jesse Johnson. You can help me out with one of three simple actions. You can write a five-star review on iTunes, you can tell a friend about the show, or you can listen to another episode on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. You can learn more about me and my equine-based leadership work at supergivers.com. Thanks for listening.